We're going to be studying lesson number 81 in your books. It's called Stepping Stones, Not Stumbling Blocks. We're going to be continuing our uh, lesson that we started last week on the seventh sermon in our Life of Christ study. And if you're ready, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together here this morning. Father God, we thank you for your presence among us. We know where two or three are gathered. There are you in the midst of us. We thank you for the resident Holy Spirit who is our teacher. We pray, Father, that he would have his will and way in every heart here, that we would have ears to hear, that these sayings would sink down deep into our ears. And if there are needs in our own lives, uh, ways that we can adjust ourselves and our attitudes and our behavior and our actions so that we might be more conformed into the image of your Son through the study this morning, I pray that we would do that that the Holy Spirit would indeed have his will in our lives. Thank you, Father, for this privilege we have to assemble in this beautiful facility for the sole purpose of getting to know you better through your word. And I pray that you truly would be glorified and magnified in all that we say and do and think here this morning. For we pray in your blessed name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we found in our study last week that as the Lord and his men had been traveling between the location of the transfiguration, wherever that had taken place, and they were passing through Galilee on their way to Capernaum, the Lord's disciples had been doing what? Arguing they had been disputing with one another as to who among them would be the greatest in the kingdom. Now, although at first they did not want to tell the Lord about their dispute, um, because he did ask them, yet when they were all together in the house in Capernaum, and whose house did we speculate that it might have been that they were in at this point in time? Probably Peter's house. When they were all together in Peter's house, they revealed to him by way of a question, and their question was, you can find it in Matthew 18:1. they asked the Lord, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They revealed to him, really, what their dispute had been on the road. Now, when he asked them what they were talking about, what they, were, they didn't tell him because they were embarrassed. But now when they're gathered together in probably Peter's house, they, they reveal what they had been discussing by their question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Although, he, you know, of course he knew what they had been talking about because he knows everything. What they were doing here was really attempting to mask their real question. Notice their question in Matthew 18, 1 is, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But what were they really wanting to know? Who among them was to be the greatest in the kingdom? The Lord, we are told, perceived the true thoughts of their hearts. That's over in Luke 9, 47. And therefore, because he could read their hearts like an open book, and he knew that they were uh, arguing about, you know, selfish motive, who was the greatest. Therefore, he launched into a much-needed sermon for not only them, but also for us. And more than any other sermon that the Lord gave, this one tells believers how to get along with one another. Is that important for us? Yes, it is. We need to know how to get along with one another. Now, this sermon is most compactly found in Matthew 18, verses 3 to 35, although you will find bits and pieces of it also over in Mark 9 and in Luke 9. Today, we're going to be in Matthew 18 and and Mark 9. Luke doesn't add a whole lot to what we're going to say today, so we'll be skipping Luke by and large. 
And, you know, I thought about the fact that all of us one day are going to be asked what it was that we were. <laughs> Did you ever think about giving an account in heaven? One day we're all going to be asked what it was that we were disputing about as we walked along life's way with our fellow man. And from heaven's perspective, some of the things that we disputed about among ourselves, you know, with our brother, Christian brothers and sisters are going to look pretty foolish, aren't they? Think about some of the disputes we've had and how foolish they are. Well, we mentioned last week how sad it was that the disciples were self-centeredly arguing about such a matter when the Lord had just told them in clear, non-symbolic language, told them several times just in the recent past, that he was to be betrayed, that he was to suffer many things by the hands of the religious rulers, and that he was even going to be what? Killed. He had just told them that. And yet, rather than focusing on him as they're walking along the way, thinking about what he would have to go through, even though we're told that they were exceeding sorry, I think Luke was the one who told us they were when they heard these things, they were exceeding sorry. In other words, they were exceeding grieved about it. Yet they were not grieved enough to sympathize with him and to put aside their own selfish interests, their own selfish ambitions. Now, there's nothing wrong with ambition, having vision and having ambition for God. But what is wrong is to have ambition, you know, self-centered, self-seeking ambition, where we try to lift ourselves up. And notice, too, that, you know, instead of focusing on him, and like I said last week, saying, oh, Lord, you know, tell us more about it so we know how to pray more for you and all the suffering that you're going to go through, that's horrible. How can we help you? How can we minister to you? Their grief didn't last very long at all, did it, when it said they were exceeding sorry for him? Because here they are arguing who's going to be the greatest among them. Now, this argument may well have, have started because of envy. We talked about this a little bit, too. Only three of them, after all, only three had been invited to join the Lord Jesus up there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And even though Peter, James, and John had not been permitted by the Lord Jesus to tell the other men what had gone on up there, yet those men would have, um, the other nine would have known that something special had happened. How do you think? How do you think they would have known something special had happened up there on the Mount of Transfiguration that they missed out on? Yes, exactly, Doris. The, probably the glow, the left after the leftover glow on the Lord's face after he had been, you know, let, unveiled his glory. I'm sure there was an afterglow on his face. And also, don't you know that Peter, James, and John would reveal some kind of excitement. I don't think they would, even though they didn't say anything, they couldn't help but show some kind of excitement just in their mannerisms coming down from such a having had such a spectacular vision, not only of the Lord, but also of having seen Moses and Elijah. So the other guys, as I said, they weren't stupid. They knew that they had missed out on something. And why had these guys been the only ones? They were the same ones who he had only allowed to go in to Jairus's home and witness his daughter being raised from the dead. Furthermore, the argument could have been precipitated by their recent embarrassing failure, the nine, to cast out a demon, an unclean spirit, from a boy demoniac. And I don't know, this is speculation, but they had failed miserably in front of a large crowd of people, and they were being mocked by the scribes 
And don't you know that that would have put them in a kind of a bad mood? (laughs) Wouldn't it have put you in a bad mood? And what do you think maybe Peter, James, and John... Peter, James, and John have a lot of growing yet to do. We're going to see that in in our next few lessons, and we already know it about Peter. Don't you think maybe those three would have been rubbing it in a little bit? Like, uh, you know, guys, if we had been here, we could have cast out that, that demon. What's the matter with you? And even if they didn't say it in so many words... I'm sure they had an attitude about them that would not be good, that would be conducive probably to arguing. And added to this was the fact that Jesus had miraculously paid for only whose tax? Only Peter's tax. And again, if you put all these things together, you can understand being human and having the sin nature, how this may have aroused some feelings of jealousy in in the men. In some ways, the disciples' question, you know, who who among us is the greatest, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, is really amazing. Because what it really tells us is that they didn't really get what Jesus had preached to them in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, ladies? Remember what it begins with? The Beatitudes. And what do the Beatitudes begin with? Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, the, the spiritual, hum, the, the ones that are humble enough to understand that they're really nothing apart from Christ. And what else does it say? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the, the uh, merciful, and so on and so on. Did they get it? Well, this doesn't really show us that they got it. What about, uh, blessed are the peacemakers? I don't think they got that one either. Or or, uh, blessed are the persecuted? Oh, no, Lord, you know, you're not going to be, you're not going to suffer persecution, and we sure don't want to suffer persecution. We want to be in the kingdom, and we want to be the greatest. We want to be on your right hand. We want to be on your left hand. You see, they had heard, but they hadn't yet gotten it, had they? We have to ask ourselves that all the time, too, because we spent a long time in the Sermon on the Mount. Did we really? We heard it. Did we really get it? They were convinced. There's no doubt about it. We know that they were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, and the Messiah was going to establish a glorious earthly kingdom. Therefore, you see, they began to anticipate Who would be, who of them, since they knew they had been selected as his apostles, out of all the disciples he had one time had, they had been selected to be his apostles. So they began to anticipate who would be the greatest among them in that coming kingdom. And and they began to jockey for that position. You see, you think about the fact that when they were coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John had just seen Moses and Elijah. Remember, they're thinking Elijah, and then they start thinking a little bit about John the Baptist. We talked about that. And and thinking of John the Baptist might have had them remembering that Jesus had said that among those born of women, there had not risen a greater than John. And then he went on to say, but he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, greater than John the Baptist. He was the greatest up to that time. There was none greater, I should say. But even the least in the kingdom would be great. So they're thinking, well, if there's a least, there's a greater. Okay, so there's degrees. So who among us is going to be the least? Who among us, more importantly, is going to be the greatest? Now, the kind of kingdom 
that they were thinking about becomes very clear to us even over in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, they ask Jesus. Now remember, this is even after the resurrection. The Lord has been crucified, buried, and risen. And it's right before he ascends into heaven. And the last question that disciples have to him is this. You can read it in Acts 1.6 if you care to look along. He, they say, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now, there's three things about that question that show us they still didn't get it. All right? The verb restore shows that they were expecting a political territorial kingdom. The word Israel tells us that they're expecting a national kingdom. Will thou again, you know, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's their question. So they're, they're, they're picturing still a political national kingdom. And the words at this time tells us that they were expecting an immediate fulfillment of the kingdom. I guess they were expecting him to go up to heaven and then come right back down and establish the kingdom. But you know what? They were wrong on all three counts. The kingdom was going to be, number one, spiritual. It was going to be a spiritual kingdom, and it would consist of those who were saved from sin through their faith in Jesus Christ. It wasn't going to be an earthly territorial kingdom at that time, right? going to be that's still future from where we are and it was going to be for all people all people not just for the nation of israel and it was not going to be at that time it was not going to be an immediate kingdom it was going to develop over time through the preaching of the gospel you see they were thinking in terms of earthly kingdoms weren't they they were thinking in terms of kingdoms like rome where there was a hierarchy where there was uh, the, you know, the, the Caesar, the emperor, then there was the senate, then there were kings, under kings, you know, and then there were tetrarchs and um, whatever else. There were centurions, and there was a hierarchy of rank. So that's how they're thinking. <clears throat> but the, the spiritual king, they still didn't even get it after the resurrection. When did they finally get it, ladies? Yes, on the day of Pentecost when, when the Holy Spirit indwelled them and finally all the light bulbs started going off so these were concepts that the disciples would have to learn later <clears throat> so in this sermon jesus is concerned about teaching what the citizens of the kingdom must be like since at this point in time the disciples are still a long way from really comprehending genuine christianity and to <clears throat> to help him in his verbal teaching as the lord often did he, uh, he taught with an object lesson. You know, he taught and then he used an object to help him with his teaching. So he took a small child, put the child, now remember they're in Peter's house, and this could possibly be one of Peter's child children. He put the small child in their midst and he began to tell his men some very important truths about God's perspective on true greatness. And we learned last week that it all begins with what? Childlike. Where did the Beatitudes begin? Where did the Sermon on the Mount begin? Poor in spirit. It all begins with key characteristic, a key attribute that we need to pray for more than probably any other, and that is humility. Humility. Using the child as his living illustration, the Lord taught that one must be like a small child, small child, 
to even enter into the kingdom of heaven in the first place. And that was in Matthew 18, too. A child is utterly dependent on his father. He is taught by his father. He does not place his own thinking. And we're talking little children, little, little children, like in our nursery over here. They don't place their own thinking above that of their father's thoughts. So what Jesus is saying is that to enter into the kingdom, a person must demonstrate this childlike dependence and trust on the heavenly father, you know, who offers them entrance into the kingdom. And secondly, the Lord taught his men that the way to be the greatest, if they really wanted to be the greatest, which they did, wanted to be the greatest in the kingdom for the wrong reasons. Right now, they wanted to be the greatest for the wrong reasons. But the way to be the greatest is to be the humblest. The way to be first is to be, what, last. The way to be big is small. You know, divine paradoxes, upside down, topsy-turvy from the way the world looks at things. The way to be a celebrity in God's eyes is to be the servant of all. Now, something interesting is that in the Aramaic language, which was, of course, the language that Jesus commonly used, is most common. He knew Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, but the one that he would most likely have been speaking most of the time with his men especially would be the Aramaic language. And in Aramaic, there, this, there's this, it's the same word for child as it is for servant. Isn't that interesting? The word child and servant are the same. Those who possess the heart of a child, you see, will have little problem in serving others. Now, children do, and you all know this, children do have some characteristics that people of God should not imitate. Now, they do some things that we shouldn't imitate. Uh, They don't know very much, for one thing, and that's, you know, not, (laughs) we can't blame them for that, but that's not something we want to imitate. They lack ability to focus on one thing for very long periods of time, right? If you have little children, you surely know that. They don't have very long attention spans, and that's not something we want to emulate. That's not something we want to imitate. And they are foolish. You know, Paul said, you know, when I was a child, I behaved like a child, but when I became a man, I needed to put away some of those childish things, those foolish things. And children are easily deceived. So those are things that we don't want to imitate. We're not to be childlike in those ways. But children have positive characteristics, too, such as open-mindedness and trust. Although Jesus was thinking primarily in this context about humility, which he again makes very clear in Matthew 18, 4, where he says, Whosoever humbleth himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He stressed humility because humility is the exact opposite of mankind's greedy pride. Do you see a whole lot of humility in the world and among these celebrities of the world? No, because they consider it a weakness. So the child is our model in this context, not in his innocence, not in his faith even. Well, his faith, you know, trust in his father, and not really even in his purity. But the main focus is in his humility and his unconcern for social status. Got to admit, a little child could care less about having um, prominence and prestige social status in this world, right? He doesn't care about that at all. People And people are not naturally like that. They must change to become as little children. 
The key to being greatly used by God is, again, I repeat, I guess we can't hear it enough, is humility. The one who learns to be nothing will become something in God's eyes. The one who wants to lead others must first learn to lead himself. Isn't that true? You can't very well lead others if you can't even lead yourself. You can't sit at the control unless you, first of all, learn self-control. How can you you control anyone else if you can't even control yourself, if you have no control over your own emotions and your own life? I'll just give you some verses in Scripture, and there are many, many that you can look up on this subject. But, for example, Galatians 6, 3 says, If a man thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing... And we're all, in, you know, we're all really nothing, aren't we? Except for God's grace. When a man, if a man thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. That's Galatians 6.3. Another one is Romans 12.16 where it says, Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Another one, of course, is in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, where it says, Let nothing be done in strife or vain glory, but in what? Lowliness of mind. Let, we should all memorize this verse. This, these two verses, these are good. Let nothing be done in strife or in vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself, themselves. If we had that attitude, would we be having a lot of arguments? If we each esteemed others greater than ourselves, always in lowliness of mind, put others before ourselves. It goes on and it says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. You know, don't just be concerned about your own things, your own little problems, your own little life, but focus on the problems and things and concerns of other people. Very good scriptures there. All right, let's look at the scripture now. That was our introduction. <laughs> so, I guess I'll go ahead and read, review. I'll read Matthew 18, verses 1 to 5, and then we'll go over and look at Mark's account in Mark 9. All right, let me just begin with Matthew 18, 1, where it says, At the same time, it's the same day that Peter went out and got the tax money from the fish's mouth. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And verse 5, which we did not talk about last week, And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. Okay, now if you will go over to Mark, I want to read Mark, verses 35 to 37. Mark 9, excuse me, Mark 9, verses 35 to 37. And notice here, something we didn't read in Matthew, that the Lord takes the little child in his arms. And I just think that that just adds to the picture so much more, doesn't it? The compassionate nature of the Lord and how he loves the little children. All right, look at verse 35. It says, And he sat down, this is in Peter's house now, and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him, 
Peter must have had a son, (laughs) or this is a little boy, in his arms he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one one of such children in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me, who was the one who sent Christ. God the Father. All right, in Mark 9:37 Jesus spoke about the position that the believer has in him in Christ. He was actually blending two concepts in his illustration of this child. He was in one sense talking about little children, literal children. He's talking about literal little children. And in the other sense, he's talking about the child of God, which in, would include you and I if you truly are a child of God. No matter how old, what our age. He was saying that whoever receives literal children in his name for Jesus' sake, whoever takes a little child in the nursery or in the Sunday school class, in the Wednesday night class or at home, and tries to br- brings, brings that one to Jesus, just as he illustrated, he took the child and brought the child to himself, is, uh, in Christian love, is considered as having received Christ himself. And there's no greater thing to do than to bring a child to Christ, is there? Because then they have their whole life before them to serve him. He's also saying, in addition to that, about little ch- literal children, he's saying that whoever receives any of God's spiritual children, believers, is likewise divinely viewed as having ministered directly to who? Only Christ himself, but he takes it even a step further. He goes on to say that whoever receives such a little one, and we're all little ones in his eyes, we're all his spiritual children, not only receives him, but also receives the one who sent him, which, as we said, is God the Father. Those with a child's heart will find that they have little difficulty in being servants of others. Remember, in the Aramaic, child and servant are one in the same words. And therefore, they will gladly welcome and minister to other believers as representatives of both Jesus Christ and God the Father. And by the way, we know that the little child that he put there in their midst and then put in his arms symbolized the spiritual child of God, in other words, you and I, because Jesus himself confirmed this in verse 6, where he said that the little ones are who? Those which believe in me. So the biblical principle in this verse is that it is impossible to separate Jesus Christ and his Father from those who belong to him. We're all one family. We're his children. And, and, and God is our Father. So whatever is done to one of his, to one of Christ's, directly affects him. You get it? So if you have an argument with a brother or sister in Christ, you're actually directly affecting Christ and God the Father. So because of a believer's position in Christ, regardless of how immature or how weak he may be in his practical walk, you know, in his daily walk, yet he is to be treated as one would directly treat Christ himself. So, you know, you may be very spiritually mature and a weak brother comes in. How you treat that weak brother is how you treat Christ himself. And this, when people try to become great, when people try to become great, they put themselves ahead of others, don't they? Particularly the small and the weak. 
They trample on them in order to get to the top. What Jesus is saying is that instead of striving to become the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and in the process of attempting to do that, hurting others, instead of guarding them and protecting them. See, that's exactly what the religious rulers did, isn't it? In their attempt to get to the top, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all those guys, they wanted to be the greatest, didn't they? They prided themselves on being oh, so pious and elite and have, having so much prestige that they were climbing on top of others. They didn't really have any concern and care for their people, their flock, did they? So the disciples, he's telling them they should learn to forget about themselves and to focus their loving attention on Christ's little ones, on the lambs of the flock, and on the, all those who in their humble trustfulness come to faith in, in Jesus Christ. You know, a great person in God's eyes does not build, his own, uh, build up his own prestige. He builds the lives and betters the welfare of others, not focused on himself. And if God lifts him up, that's totally God's business, right? If that one just needs to focus on building up and bettering the welfare and the lives and the spiritual maturity of others. A humble person will be interested in other people. You'll never see a person who's focused on himself being very humble. They're just full of themselves. A humble, a humble person will be interested not only in physical little children, you know, physical children, even though they might never even receive a thank you. you know, to get a thank you from little children, you have to live a long time, don't you? And maybe only a few, like the ten lepers that were healed, only one came back to say thank you. You don't do it for the thanks. You don't do it to get something in, in return. Although you do, don't you? You get the blessings of, of being with them. But um, not only will the humble, humble person be interested in little children, but in all he will be interested in all of God's people. A humble person will treat all believers as he would treat the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be just as interested in the quote-unquote little people as in the celebrities. He will not merely be interested in those who can reciprocate kindness and, and service or those who can benefit him or her by their association. True greatness, in God's eyes, Jesus said, means caring for all of those who belong to him, regardless of anything else about them. A humble person is a giving person. A humble person is a servant. There's no such thing as having an open heart toward God and a closed hand toward your fellow man. All right, let's move on to why he said this, because... <laughs> The next situation is really interesting. We're going to talk about the problem of sectarianism. How many of you have ever heard of that word before or know what it means? Well, you'll know before we're finished, I think, here. Let's look over at, are you in Mark? Are you in Mark 9? I think we are. All right, let's look at verses um, 38 to 41. As soon as Jesus said his little, you know, whosoever shall receive one of these children, my name receives me, uh, John thought about something, and here we hear from John. It says, uh, and John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. And we forbade him, because he followeth not us. And over in Luke 9.49, it says, He does not follow you with us. All right, this is the problem of sectarianism. The Apostle John 
having just heard the Lord's words this far, suddenly thought about an incident that had apparently occurred sometime in the past, obviously when Jesus was not with them. And this situation involved the, the fact that the disciples, I don't know who, who was with John, if it was all of them and Jesus was up on a mountain praying, who knows? Or if it was John and a partner of his. But anyway, they had encountered a man who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. But because this fellow did not associate himself with them, he did not follow the Lord with them, he was not one of them, they had rebuked him. The disciples had rebuked him and told him to cease his activities. Stop doing that. Stop battling the, the forces of darkness. How dare you do that in Jesus' name? Now, who this man was, we don't know because we're not told. He may have come to faith in Christ through the ministry of John the Baptist, or, or maybe he had remained in company with the disciples of John, even after his beheading. He may have been a man who had heard somewhere along the line, had heard Jesus teach, and saw his miraculous works, and believed in him, put his faith in, in Christ's person. Or he may have been a, a man who had only heard other people report about Jesus and decided to trust in him. But somehow, he had come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus, and he was... <laughs> He was single-handedly doing what nine of the Lord's disciples together were not able to do. He was casting out demons. And remember last week, nine of them had not been able to deliver that boy demoniac. But because this man had not aligned himself, you know, with their orthodox band of disciples, they had forbidden him to continue with his exorcisms. But now... And this is called sectarianism. Sectarian com sectarianism comes from the word sect, S-E-C-T. You know, we've talked about the sect of the Herodians, the sect of the Sadducees. You know, it's a little like it's my group and only my group. It's just our little group. That's called sectarianism. A lot of uh, cults are, are sectarian. So now after hearing the Lord's words about receiving other spiritual children, John, hey John I think was pretty clever. You know, he, he's listening and he, he's picking up on this and he's wondering now if maybe, maybe they had been in error about their attitude toward this stranger. The disciples had not only demonstrated a lack of love and an attitude of jealousy and envy toward one another, by their disputings and their arguments over greatness, but they had also demonstrated a lack of love and an attitude of jealousy now toward another believer, at least on this one incident, and they're going to do it again. We're going to see in another week or so that they do it again. They, they were jealous or envious or just didn't have a good attitude toward another believer who was outside of their particular little group. And this reminds us very much of an incident that happened back in Numbers chapter 11 when Joshua, remember great Joshua, the battle of Jericho? Well, Joshua had complained to Moses about Eldad and Medad. Now, I hope if any of you are going to have sons that you won't name them Eldad and Medad. <laughs> they had such peculiar names, Medad. Hmm. But Medad and Eldad were prophesying in the camp 
but they did not go with the rest of the 70 who were prophesying at that time to the door of the tabernacle. So Joshua said, oh, you know, they're prophesying in the name of the Lord in the wrong place. They're not one of us. So he said to Moses, my Lord Moses, forbid them. Don't allow that to go on. Silence them from working in God's name. How dare they do any work in God's name and they're not in the same place we are. You know, believers who think that their own particular little group is the only group that God recognizes and that God receives and that God uses and that God blesses are going to be in for an incredible shock when they get to heaven. (laughs) They are going to be amazed when they see all kinds of people in heaven who weren't in their particular little group. The Lord's words in Mark 9, verses 39 and 40. Did I read that? I didn't. I need, did I read that? I didn't. Okay, I need to read that. Let's look at that. Uh, but Jesus said, this is after John told him about this incident. Jesus said, forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. So his words here to his men strike a terrible death blow to those who have such an intolerant spirit of sectarianism You know, they have the attitude, they think that their group is the only group. This is just like how Moses responded to Joshua. When Joshua said, you know, oh, my Lord Moses, forbid them from doing that. Moses said, envious thou for my sake? Would to God that the Lord would put his spirit upon all men. Amen. It's like, you know, when Paul said, when Paul, I think Paul was in prison when he, he, some people came to him and said the gospel was being preached. But, you know, outside of him, and, and, and he said, well, I, you know, I, I rejoice that no matter what their motive or how they're doing, I just rejoice in the fact that the gospel is being preached. So both, both the Lord's response and uh, Moses' response is, in essence, don't forbid that which is good, even if those who are doing it are in a different camp. You know, don't envy them for the good that they do, even though your little group may not be getting the credit for it. Maybe the disciples were upset because this man was casting out demons and they weren't getting the credit for it. The people were saying, oh, this is wonderful. But the man was doing it in the Lord's name and, the, and Jesus claims this man is his own. So I'm not talking about those out there who don't belong to Christ. Casting out devils and thus battling Satan's kingdom in the name of Christ demonstrates faith in him, in Christ, as the sent one of God. It gives honor to him. Likewise, those who preach the gospel, and I'm talking about the true gospel of, of grace, not of works, like the ones over in uh, Luke chapter 7, you know, who say, Lord, Lord, did not we cast out demons in thy name? <clears throat> that was a works. They were in a work system. They didn't have the true gospel of grace. So those who preach the gospel and those who teach repentance, true repentance, should not be forbidden to do so simply because they are not in a particular group. And now, what we do know about this unknown man is that Jesus claimed him as one of his own, and the Lord knows those who are his, however they may be dispersed, right? He knows his own. And here he's cautioning his men to realize that those who battle Satan in in his name are on the same side. With, it, with him. It shouldn't matter what group someone is in. 
If they have received Jesus Christ as personal Savior and Lord, then they are a brother or a sister to everyone else who is likewise a born-again believer. That's what's so beautiful about the body of Christ. You can go, like we used to go up to Word of Life Bible Conference every year, and there were people from around the world, you know, every color, every nationality, and it was so wonderful because instantly we, you know, that we were just part of the same family family of God. There's that oneness and unity with the members, the true members of the body of Christ. We're in the same family, and we must, according to Christ himself, receive one another. So true greatness, then, not only expresses itself in childlike humility, but in ministry. Rather than hindering a brother or a sister from his service for Christ— Even if they're not in our particular little group, what are we to do? We are to encourage and minister to that to another one. And we can do this in as simple of of a way as offering them a cup of water to drink, as it says in verse 41. It says, uh, For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Instead of faulting this man and forbidding this man, who was casting out demons in Jesus' name, Uh, Instead of doing that, the disciples should have encouraged him. The least they should have done is offer him a cup of water. You see what Jesus is saying? Maybe he was not completely right on. You know, maybe he didn't have all his ducks in a row exactly like, like, but either did they at this point in time. But he certainly would not have been drawn any closer to Jesus by by the disciples' self-righteous attitude and by their unloving response to his works for the Lord. Would he, was this, do you think this man was drawn closer to the Lord because of his, the disciples' reaction to him? No. We need to realize that the family of God is as broad as his heart. We need to realize that in every family, I know this is certainly true with my family, in every family there are some strange members and black sheep. Actually, they think I'm the black sheep of my family. <laughs> I guess I am. But, but we need to accept them all because they are on our side of the conflict. You know, there's a, there's a, a battle. We're involved in a spiritual warfare. And um, you're either for him or against him. You know, and I'd rather have somebody, even if they don't have all their ducks in a row, I'd sure rather, you know, encourage them, at least in battling the forces of Satan. Do you get the point? Nod your head if you do. If you don't, go like this. (laughs) Let's look at the peril of stumbling blocks next. And for this, go back over to Matthew. Matthew 18. Now we'll read verses 6 and 7. To get this whole sermon, we have to do this. We have to keep jumping back and forth because he doesn't say everything in just one place. All right, in, in Matthew 18, 6, he goes on and he says, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. And he says in verse 7, which really, verse 7, you could probably spend a whole lesson easily on verse 7, and I'm not going to go there. This is very deep theology that I will leave to the theologians to discuss, all right? (laughs) But it's it's deep, and we're just going to hardly... Well, I'm not going to get into it, but it's got determinism in here. It's got the sovereignty of God in here. It's got the free will of man in here. 
it's got why God allowed uh, evil to enter into the world and all that sort of thing. But just let's read it. Verse 7, woe, Jesus says, woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come. You know what he's saying? You know, whenever Jesus says must, remember how we've talked about how if he says must, it's, it's, it's a must. He says offenses must come. Why did evil and temptations come into this world? Why did God allow evil and temptations to come into this world? They must. I mean, it's a big question, but they must. He said they must. Needs come. I guess so that we could be tested and proved and that he could receive the glory for those who trust in him and all that. I mean, it gets into some deep, heavy waters here, but... He goes on to say, but woe to that man by whom the offense come. You see, the offenses must come by his divine decree, but still woe to the man by whom the offenses come. We still have human responsibility, even though it's his sovereign will. You see what I'm saying? Man still has his human responsibility and is accountable for what he chooses. Woe to the man by whom the offense comes. All right, Jesus had just talked about the fact that one who ministers to or one who receives welcomes a child of his is actually embracing he himself, the Lord. And here now, he presented the other side of this truth. In these verses that I just read, he stated the serious danger of causing harm to the one who belongs to him, causing someone to stumble. The attack, because of the believer's position or the believer, the little child's position, Identity with Christ is actually an attack against Christ and the one who sent him, his father. So you see, if you receive a little child or a spiritual child of God, you're receiving Christ and God the Father. If you cause a little child or a spiritual child of God to stumble, you're also offending Christ and you're offending God the Father. Now, we've talked about the, the word offend before in the Greek. It's the word scandalizo, from which we get the word scandalize. It literally means to cause to fall or, or a, um, stumble. And um, every time it's used in the New Testament, it has reference to spiritual stumbling. The Lord is speaking about the danger of causing any believer to stumble in his or her faith or to stumble into or be enticed into or be to be influenced into sin. And this warning includes the danger of even somehow making it easier for a believer to sin or to fall in any degree from his or her faith. So a person who directly or indirectly causes a Christian, a fellow Christian, to sin is not only causing an offense against that brother or sister, but also the Lord himself. Now the Lord, you know, must have really gotten his men's attention when he said that it would be better for this one who had caused such an offense to have had a millstone tied around his neck, and a millstone could weigh up to hundreds of pounds. You know what a millstone is? A great big, huge round stone that they use to grind um, grain, you know, wheat, whatever. But it'd be better, he said, for this one to have one of these huge, heavy millstones tied around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. And this really got their attention because if there was one way of death that the Jews hated, or really feared, I should say. Of course, they, they hated crucifixion. But the, the death that they feared above all was death by way of drowning. 
That was their greatest fear of all. The concept of drowning held terror for the Jew. And it was never, therefore, a um, method of punishment of their own. They would never punish one of their own by drowning that, that one. They would just, you know, throw stones at cast stone, stone them to death. So the, the very phrase of being cast into the depths of the sea painted a picture to them, to the Jewish mind, of utter destruction. <clears throat> Suffering such an awful kind of a physical death, Jesus was saying, would be better than the spiritual damage done if one were to cause even one of his little ones to sin. Now, the disciples had not just been involved in an argument that probably caused each and every one of them to sin by getting angry and jealous and resentful of one another, but they had also just confessed, or at least John on their behalf had confessed to Jesus how they had caused another believer to stumble. As I said, when this one who had placed his faith somewhere along the line in Jesus Christ was so rudely handled by the Lord's own special men, his faith and his zeal for the Lord must have taken a real plunge. So they had discouraged this man's service for Christ. And maybe his rough treatment even caused him to feel resentment and anger toward Christ himself. Well, that's what Christ is saying here, really. At any rate, there can be little doubt that these men were doing, his men, the disciples, were doing exactly what the Lord is speaking about here. There are numerous ways that believers can, can um, cause other believers to stumble into sin. And the, the most apparent way is by directly tempting them to sin. You know, the world and, and Satan... Are, are the champions of this. As, as the Lord said, you know, offenses must needs come from them. We expect offenses to come from the world and from Satan. They're, they're the, the champions at causing believers to stumble and everybody to stumble. But the sad part is that believers, true believers, can even tempt other believers. And we have an example of this from the very beginning. Remember when Eve was tempted to sin by Satan? Who did she then turn around and tempt to sin? Her husband, Adam. We as believers likewise can do the same thing. We can cause others, you know, to sin, other believers. A believer who knows that he or she has fallen into the temptation to sin sometimes feels better if they can cause someone else to sin along with them. That's just, that's our sinful nature raising up its ugly head. You know, if we're tempted to sin and gossip about Susie Q, and then all of a sudden we get convicted, ooh, I just gossip, gossip, that's bad, and then we can get our friend to also gossip about Susie Q, then somehow it sort of eases our own conscience, doesn't it? We, we can, weak brothers, now this, this is a common thing, weak brothers and sisters in Christ can influence other weak brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble. That's, that's pretty common. You know, you get a bunch of spiritual babes together, and it's easy for one weak brother, one spiritual babe, to cause another spiritual babe to stumble. Weak brothers and sisters in Christ can also cause mature believers to stumble in sin. But that doesn't happen very often when a weak spiritual babe causes a mature. But it can happen. It still can happen. But when it's really sad... 
and the worst, and you hear this is what makes the, you know, the media, is when a strong believer or, you know, someone especially in leadership, a mature, supposedly a mature believer, causes weaker baby brothers and sisters to stumble. So there's all these, I guess even strong believers can cause strong believers. So you have all kinds of different situations. But the bottom line is that believers can and do, unfortunately, directly and indirectly cause fellow believers to stumble. And this area of danger is very, very broad. And the New Testament is full of warnings about living out our faith in a righteous walk that matches our talk so that we don't cause others to sin or to stumble because of what we say or do. 1 Timothy 4.12 tells us that we are to be an example of those who believe by such things as our speech, by our conduct, our our love, our um, faith, and our purity. None of us, no matter how isolated we might try to be in our lives, none of us can avoid the truth that we are all examples to others. We're not isolated islands. What we do and what we say always, either directly or indirectly, affects somebody else. We can either influence by our lives and our actions and our attitudes and our emotions and all of it put together, we can either influence people for the better and help them to live more righteously for Christ, or we can influence them for the worse by causing them to stumble into sin. And this, of course, you know, can get into a whole realm. I think in your notes I talk more about um, our liberties. This can involve the area or does involve the area of our Christian liberties. Instead of misusing our Christian liberties for our own pleasure and for our own satisfaction, we should gladly restrict them or forfeit them whenever doing so would help our weaker brothers and sisters, you know, instead of causing them to stumble. So instead of setting an unrighteous example before others in any way, what's, you know, whatever we do or say or whatever, it can get into all kinds of different realms, we should constantly be on our guard at all times to to be setting a Christ like example before all men, you know, not only when we're out in the marketplace, but also when we're in the home. Jesus says, whoa. And whenever Jesus says, whoa, it's not good. (laughs) He says, whoa, to that man or woman by whom the offense cometh. And those serious words alone, just those words right there, should cause us to listen. They should cause us to, to be on alarm and to seriously examine our own witness before others. You know, you can argue all day and you can argue all night about such things as whether it's right or not right for a Christian to do this or to do that, and you're all thinking of different things in your minds right now. What should a Christian do? What should a Christian not do? But the bottom line is, the real question is, what is the level of witness for Jesus Christ that you desire to have before others. If you want to have the highest possible level of witness for him, and I hope that's your desire, to have the highest possible level, you will gladly, gladly make sacrifices so that no one will stumble over your example, even though you know that in Christ you have those liberties, that you can do those things. 
you will gladly give up those rights so that nobody, your weaker brother, will not stumble over you. All right, well, not only does the Lord warn his men about stumbling and harming other another believer, but they can also harm themselves. Let's look at that in uh, verses 8 and 9 of Matthew 18. He says, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Remember how many times the Lord talked about hell? Here we go again. He mentions it again. In verse 9, he says, And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye. I feel like I, this verse again is applying to my life. Remember last week I had my tax appointment and was a taxing situation. Before that it was the lunatic son and I had my lunatic son. And, and now, this week I've had a sty in my eye, so I felt like I've only had one eye all week. <laughs> he says, it's better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into what? Hell fire. Again, the Lord speaks more of hell than he ever does of heaven. This is really, what the Lord says in these two verses is really a repetition of what he said back in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you remember that. Back in Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30. And since we discussed it in great detail at that time, I'm, not, I'm just going to refer you back to that lesson. You can, you know, if you have the book, the Sermon on the Mount. We have the new little book for $8 now, compact little book, and then... If you have your Life of Christ 2 book, that's what it was all about. But his point simply was that a Christian do, should do whatever is necessary, no matter how painful or how sacrificial it might be, a Christian uh, should do whatever it takes in order to keep himself or herself from sinning and, you know, to keep from causing someone else to sin as well. Nothing, he says in, in these verses, nothing, nothing, not even something as precious as your own eyes or your hands or your feet is worth keeping if it will in any way lead to what? To sin. So get rid of whatever it is in your life that is tempting you to sin. I don't know what it might be. It might be, you know, we have different things. If it's um, uh, suggest suggestive movies, DVDs. If it's um, uh, some kind of talk shows that maybe you watch regularly that uh, wallow in depravity. And, you know, all, they're all secular. None of them are giving you a Christian perspective on the talk shows. Uh, books that, you're, or that you have a temptation to read that are not really very Christian and um, get your mind in the wrong direction. Or books that um, tell you how to get ahead by stepping on other people. Uh, or talk, even among yourselves, that promotes negativity or gossip. Get rid of whatever the poison is in your life. Protect your mind from the defilement. And not only your minds, but the minds of your children, those that are in the home with you. Of course, in the final analysis, the answer to any problem is, is not to run away, especially since it's so difficult to avoid temptation in our culture. I mean, you'd have to run away. You would have to become a hermit to avoid what your eyes see and what's all around you in this world. But the real answer is to have a love for God and the transformed mind and the heart that flow from it, right? 
Nothing is worth holding on to at the risk of doing damage to the eternal soul. That's what the Lord is saying. And that's why Paul said that he buffeted his body. He was constantly buffeting his body and making it his slave. Make your body your slave. Don't become a slave to your body. Paul knew that the person who deals most directly with his own temptations and his own sins would be in the least danger of causing someone else to sin. So a truly humble person is the one who is willing to sacrifice so that others will not be offended. All right, the power of salt. Let's see what time is it. We're over. The power of salt um, in verses 49 to 50 of Mark 9, I'll just tell you that Jesus said, everyone will be salted with fire. And there he is speaking of everyone. <laughs> For non-believers, he's saying that they will be salted with the final fire of judgment. And that's a dramatic picture of the, the, torch, the horror of hell. Salt has a corroding quality. You know, that's why they throw salt on top of ice and snow, because it corrodes, it eats into So he's speaking everyone. You know, some people will be thrown into the final judgment of hell, but salt also has a preserving quality. And we talked about this also in the Sermon on the Mount. So salt is used to signify that which is lasting, like a covenant of salt. All the Old Testament sacrifices to be pleasing to God had had to be salted. You can read about that in Leviticus 2.13. in Mark 9:50 Jesus told that his his men that salt is good and again in the similitudes we discussed this so I'm not going to go into detail but we know that salt gives flavor to food doesn't it the christian is to give flavor to this insipid world that we live in salt makes people thirsty we're to make people thirsty for the truths of of god's word and for christ christians in other words are to live such an upright life before the world that we may make the world thirst for the righteousness that they see in us and christians also are that which preserves this world from a total breakout of sin can you imagine what this world would be like without the christians in it and we're the, only, we're the only ones, because the Holy Spirit indwells us, that's holding this world back from just total depravity and anarchy. Just look at what happens to the world when we leave in the rapture. But note that Jesus asks a very serious question. He says, if the salt, this is over in Matthew 5, 13, if the salt have lost his saltiness, wherewith will ye season it? Season it? You see, the disciples were God's salt to the world at that time. But because of their attitude toward each other and toward other believers, they were in grave danger of losing their saltiness, their flavor, their appeal to others. Remember, the salt without any salty flavor is worthless. You don't want to put non-salty salt on your food, do you? The salt of the Lord's day could easily become contaminated with impurities and and lose its flavor and its effectiveness. The disciples should not have been rebuking one another, and they should not have been forbidding others from being salt in the world. Instead, they should have been doing some self-examination about their own saltiness. Instead of allowing impurities to enter into their hearts, such as, you know, jealousies and uh, and envy and pride and lack of love, etc. If they would simply learn to stand together, <laughs> despite their differences, and were they different, the 12 men? Very, very different. But if they would learn to stand together, united, 
to help other believers and to help themselves, then they would have a far more salty impact on this world. And that's what he was trying to teach them and what he was trying to teach us. Did they get it? No, they didn't get it. Because if you just look a couple chapters over at Matthew 20, you know what you find? You find that they're arguing all over again about who's going to be the greatest. Oh, well, we're slow to learn, aren't we? (laughs) Let's pray. Father God, help each of us to be salty Christians. Help us to be women who are willing to sacrifice any or all of our rights or our liberties, our Christian liberties, liberties, so that others will not stumble into sin of any kind because of our example. Help us, Lord, to live so righteously before both the world and our fellow believers that we cause people instead to thirst for you and, and for the righteousness that you alone can provide through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the many things that your word has taught us today about true greatness in your eyes and humility. Father, I pray we will apply these truths to our lives. For we pray, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen.